Register for the Packet Pushers live stream sponsored by network automation vendor Glueware coming up on June 28, 2022 at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific. The cost is free to you. We want you there to ask the Glueware team hard questions. Register at packetpushers.net slash live. That's packetpushers.net slash live, and we'll see you on June 28th. Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. You can sign up for a free CBT Nuggets trial. There is no credit card required to sign up, and you will have access to the entire training library. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Have you heard of Microtik? They make networking hardware and network operating systems. That jog your memory? No? Well, today's guest knows quite a bit about the Microtik product line as he's deployed the gear at many of his customer sites. Kevin Myers is here to chat Microtik with us. And by the end of this episode, you, you should have a good idea of what Microtik is good and not good for and whether or not you should be taking a look at them for your next network upgrade project. And this is not a sponsored show. I just happen to know Kevin a little bit and thought he'd be willing to share some of his deep Microtik knowledge to make us all smarter about this lesser known brand in the networking world. So Kevin... Welcome, or should I say welcome back to Heavy Networking. And uh, for folks that don't know you, Kevin, in a sentence or two, would you tell us who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure, Ethan. Thanks for uh, having me back. My name is Kevin Myers. I'm a network architect and co-founder of IP Architects. We are a uh, essentially a vendor-neutral independent network consulting and engineering firm that we build things all around the world for ISPs and, uh, and enterprises, but most notably... Um, we're Microtech's largest consulting firm in the world, so we spend quite a bit of time putting it into uh, a whole bunch of different places. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> largest consulting firm in the world. You, you yeah, really are the authority, one. man. Yeah. Well, okay, then you're the perfect person to ask this question of. If you're talking to an audience of network engineers, they probably know Cisco, Juniper, Arista, et cetera, pretty well. So describe Microtech gear to them. So Microtech is, sits in a really interesting space. They, they started in the mid-90s out of Latvia, so this is, you know, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, all the Baltic states are, you know, their own country. And so there's a lot of uh, tech investment and tech things happening in that space. And so Microtech, it's, it's funny, there's actually, it's a Latvian company, but it's, a, it's an American CEO. Uh, so this guy by the name of John Tully, who's from Memphis, Tennessee, was living over there uh, and hooked up with uh, another guy over there named Arnis Rekins, and they formed Microtech. And it was originally started to build wireless ISPs, uh, which is something that's become more and more popular in the ISP industry lately. Fixed wireless is a huge thing with 5G and you know bridging the digital divide and all that. And they, they started a long time ago working on that. And so in the early days, things were very simple. These were boards and x86 boxes that an operating system was wrapped around that was Linux-based where they were building a router. And as time marched on, it became a you know vertically integrated vendor with routers and switches, just like you would find anywhere else. And so it, it evolved into this really interesting product because of the wireless ISP routes. So Microtik tends to be very low cost. Uh, it's very low power. It's a, a very, very versatile device. Um, one of the things that I'll often do, especially when I'm um, hanging around uh, enterprise networkers and I'm working uh, on, you know, like in a Fortune 500 or standard enterprise client, um, not that I've traveled in a while, but I carry uh, Microtech's smallest router, which is called a Map Lite, and it's the size of a matchbook. Like literally, it's tiny. It's USB yeah. powered, has a single <laughs> port, has a magnet yeah. on it, so you can like you know slap it onto a rack. And so a lot of times, if I need to build my own hotspot or something I need to do, like I'll you know pull it out. And every time I would go into a conference room, I would put it out in USB power, and like, all the networkers in the room was like, "What is that?" 
And so, you know, and it's this tiny little router, like, oh, it does, you know, BGP and MPLS and RSVPTE. And, you know, you throw out the protocol soup and, and everybody's just kind of blown away. And then I tell them it's $19 and then they're like doubly blown away. So, you know, Microtik <laughs> is a, a fundamentally the company, is, they care very much about connecting people with very low cost equipment. It's kind of, it's kind of a mission statement for them to make networking hardware available to everybody in the world and not just people with multi-million dollar budgets. So if you're trying to build a network on literally a shoestring budget, Microtik has routers, switches, wireless equipment that, you know, that fill that role. Now, now you mentioned a lot of their roots are tied in the service provider world. So <clears throat> do you really need to be a service provider to kind of have a good fit for Microtik? Or if you're an enterprise, is there a play here too? No, in fact, the enterprises kind of discovered Microtik, at least some of them did a long time ago. And so you'll find Microtik has been used in enterprises that had very specific problems to solve. Uh, so before we hit the pandemic and, and the chip shortage and the demand for Microtik went up in the enterprise space, enterprises that had scale problems to solve would use them. Uh, we had one energy enterprise that needed um, they needed 800,000 routers um, because they were doing this massive scale energy project and they needed a router that was very inexpensive and nothing else out there fit the bill except for Microtik because they had a $30 router that did BGP, which, you know, satisfied their, their use case. I mean, you know, there's, you can't even buy an optic from most vendors for, you know, $30 or console cable, you know, and here we've got a full BGP stack able to do peering and private ASNs into this massive IoT type architecture that this energy company needed. So, you know, it's something that because it's very much protocols based, they they have a few protocols that are not standard, but they do a pretty good job of implementing all the standards based protocols and routing and switching that we we normally use. And so as such, moving into the enterprise space is, you know, pretty straightforward, you know, if you're, you know, willing to embrace multi-vendor. Because networking is networking. And so if they have standard protocols, you can adapt that to your use case. If it happens to be enterprise, yeah, Microtik can work. Absolutely. It's, uh, we've used it in a lot of enterprises. We, uh, in fact, the very first use case I had, which was more on the service provider side, but um, it was uh, interopping with Cisco. Um, we had, when I first learned about it, I was mainly uh, you know, a Cisco guy, like everybody was. Um, this is about you know, 10 years ago. And um, and our boss came in and said, "Hey, I've got that. I found this router. It's from Latvia, and it's like fifty bucks, and it does MPLS." And we were like, you know, it was like throwing a piece of raw meat, you know, like into you know into the room of dogs because we all jumped on. I'm like, oh, no way. There's no way I could do that. So we spent the next few weeks trying to figure out what it did. And sure enough, we got uh, BGP, VPN v4, and MPLS and VPLS up and working, and we're able to peer into it. We started using it as very very small. Um, like access nodes into the carrier network. And so the enterprise side of the ISP, which had a more traditional corporate IT department, they were like, hey, could we use these for our branches? Like where we have these business offices and connected. We're like, sure, yeah, why not? So we did that and we replaced all of their, um, you know, I don't even remember what they had at the time. I think it was, you know, Cisco or some, maybe a checkpoint firewall or something like that. And we replaced that all with Microtik routers because they needed a refresh and they're very inexpensive. It was like a couple hundred bucks for the router. Well, give me a range here then, because um, uh, you you mentioned earlier that uh, some of these shops, you know, some big Cisco iron, for example, you're going to pay right. a huge sum. You're into six figures, uh, seven figures if it's a you know multi-device spend. You got the pallet sure. coming up with equipment. It sounds like it would be actually hard to uh, spend that much on Microtik here. It, it is. So the, here's the interesting thing. They have a, the range that they have now is, 
Uh, it may have gone up a little bit. I think uh, the the smallest route of the Matchbox route, I think it might be in the mid twenties now. So, it, you know, six dollar price hike. You know, it's really rough going from nineteen dollars. I think it actually <laughs> is a little more now. So that's that's down on the bottom end. They just announced their new flagship router, which I got a pair of um, that they're shipping. Which is a uh, it's got two hundred gig interfaces and twelve twenty five gig interfaces with a CPU that actually comes from Amazon out of their Graviton series that'll move a couple hundred gig. And then an ASIC from Marvel Prestera that will also move uh, about 400 gig total. And that's $2,700. So you have a router that can, in hardware, layer three switch with 128,000 route capacity for 2,700 bucks. And that's list by the way. So we probably get it for like 2,500 bucks. So do, do they, do they, well, let's, let's do this. Give us an overview of the product line. We've talked about routers sure. and rich feature sets and stuff, but, but do they make like, you know, big boxes? Are they all smaller boxes, do they, routers and switches? Are there middle boxes in there? There's a lot of things in there. So, so top to bottom, because of the roots of being a wireless ISP, you're going to find a lot of RF technology in there. So there's a lot of Wi-Fi technology. If you want to build, you know, like a, a simple, you know, simple enterprise Wi-Fi, there are there's a whole slew of different types of wireless APs that you can bring back to a router. One of the interesting things about that is Microtix controller. It's pretty simple. It's not, you know, it's it's not going to go do this advanced frequency mapping and detection, but it will manage and control your APs, and it has a, a protocol similar to CapWap. Any router can be a controller. Um, one nice thing about Microtix is. Their software tends to be, with very few exceptions, every feature is available on every device. It's just a throughput thing. Um, hmm. And there's a few exceptions to that. For the most part, every, you know, the little Matchbox router can do BGP and MPLS just like the big router can do. It's just a just a speed thing. So as you look at the portfolio, there's the, the Wi-Fi APs. Uh, there are switches, which are also based on Marvel Prestera's silicon, uh, which coincidentally Cisco Meraki uses. So a lot hmm. of the chips that you'll find in Meraki are actually in the same chips and the switches are in Microtik. So you've got uh, the routers that are tend to go up to one U. They've got some very, very small routers as well as some industrial things that have uh, DIN mounts. They're working on 10 inch rack mounts. So you'll find a lot of the Microtik devices in some very interesting spaces, um, both, um, you know, you get into manufacturing, energy, places like that, where you need to stuff a small router in a place. You'll find that. And then there's also commercial RF stuff. So you get into, if you need to do a point to point shot, um, uh, fun story. Um, the vast majority of Mount Everest base camp is connected by Microtik. Um, I think there's a little bit of ubiquity in there, but if you go to uh, Mount Everest and you're at base camp and you need internet, the vast majority of the infrastructure you will ride back to the main carriers in Nepal is going to run over Microtik, all of their point to point microwave gear. So one of the other things that's, that's noteworthy about the hardware, and this is pretty much true, whether it's a router or switch or some of the commercial radio gear is that it's really resilient. They don't really sell it technically as hardened. We've put them in Alaska. We've had you know them get partially submerged in water. I personally baked one in the South Mississippi heat when I was first doing it for carrier. I didn't think it would ever survive. I had to go to a business park. We were building Metro ethernet too. And we had a roadside cabinet that had no AC. It just had a heat exchanger. Ooh. And I had to leave it there to do a load test. And I was like, there's no way this thing survives because it was like 180 yeah. degrees inside the yeah. cabinet. And I put a gig load <laughs> yeah. test on it. It was there a month later, just chugging along, just burning up. And it was fine. So they're very, very resilient for the price. You wouldn't think it, but they, uh, but they are. So, you know, top to bottom, you're not really getting into big iron chassis. Um, they are looking at that. They are working on um, doing multi-slot chassis. It's kind of the next thing on the radar for them. But mm -hmm. generally, it's going to be a small device all the way up to a 1RU device. And then, you know, the RF gears, various types of mounts for, uh, you know, towers and APs and things. 
So for a 1RU device, a very common need for an enterprise would be a PoE switch with 24 or 48 ports and then some kind of uplinks. Uh, is there yep. anything in that range? Absolutely. So they've got a, a variety of different PoE switches that are some of the quietest you'll ever run. They're um, really, really power efficient. That's one of the things Microtech does better than probably anybody else out there is from a power efficiency standpoint, they're really, really good. So they've got 24 and 48 port PoE switches that you can get with 10 gig or 40 gig uplinks uh, and bring those in. And they one of the interesting things they added is they stole a page out of the Cisco playbook and they took, I don't remember the open protocol, but the facts that, you know, we've all used in Cisco Nexus, mm -hmm. they took the open standard for that, which I think is called like remote line card or something like that in the RFC and built that in so that if you want to manage all of the switches in a deployment as one switch, you literally can hang Microtech switches off of each other. So, you know, in one particular example, we have a, a client that's, you know, more of an enterprise space that's in the retail space and you put a controller switch in and you can go hang like 10 of them off of it, but you only have one switch to deal with with the management for it, just like you would like with FACS in a Nexus. So not a stackable exactly, more like, again, more like the FEX model where the switching engine that that's really all it does and all the brains happen downstream yeah they're working on they're working on stacking there's a it's not quite like stacking they've implemented mlag uh, that was a recent addition in their new os they, they did mlag which is basically l2 mlag not not doing l3 mlag um but they are working on some kind of a stacking technology that isn't quite finished yet so that if you want to run yeah, you know, two nodes as a you know as a you know master and a slave to be able to build that ha environment that is that is on the board and in dev right now yeah, I wouldn't prioritize that if I were them. Just because given <laughs> stackables, you know, you know, it can yeah. be a thing. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's funny. We actually use, uh, we use stacking quite a bit in the carrier world. It's, it's funny. It's it's become kind of, um, you know, a no-no in the enterprise world. In the carrier world, we use it quite a bit in peering. I don't know. I just had you know, mixed uh, success with stackables. It, yeah. It, it was one of those things where as the software got a little more mature and it stabilized was fine. You didn't have, you know, yep. the whole stack needs to reboot now because- reasons it's like wait a minute we did stackables to avoid that problem what yep. i don't want to lose the whole stack and explaining that to my boss anyway yeah no you're not wrong like that i know you know 10 years ago 15 years ago definitely stacking had its it definitely had its challenges <laughs> it still does but there's yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of a little bit we network engineers have long memories uh, that's right it's exactly <laughs> right I interrupt this podcast because I want you to do something. It's not hard. Go to packetpushers.net slash live and register to attend the live stream we are running with sponsor Glueware on June 28th, 2022 at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. When we do live stream events, we want as many people there in real time as possible asking questions. We have material to get through with Glueware, right? We're not going to be able to address every question, but getting your questions along the way means we're going to ask the Glueware team things we didn't think of on our own. And that means we get better information shared during the event. And Glueware, they have a lot of information that they want to share. And by the way, we do not do that information sharing webinar style. Instead, the format is rapid fire, 10 minute sessions hosted by me, Greg and Drew. And each session covers a specific topic related to Glueware's network automation platform and their latest announcements. And yeah, there might be a few slides, but we're going to focus on seeing the product in action. If you're shopping for a network automation solution, this is the easiest homework you're ever going to do. Get caught up with the state of Glueware, hear how other customers are using the product on their networks, learn about a shiny new Glueware feature that I can't even talk about yet, and then figure out how all of this would map to your network, and then connect with the Glueware team to learn more or get help with a proof of concept test. 
Bluewire has been a longtime sponsor of Packet Pushers, and their product is one of the standouts in the network automation field. This live stream is worth your time. Register at packetpushers.net slash live. That's packetpushers.net slash live. We do not give your contact information to Glueware just because you signed up. That is up to you. Opt into that or opt out. Privacy is a really big deal to us. Register for this event, June 28th, 2022 at packetpushers.net slash live, and we'll see you there. And now back to today's episode. Kevin, how is Microtech doing with the ongoing supply chain crisis? So this is one area they are really shining, not to say that they haven't had their own challenges, but, and this is um, maybe to take a step back, we work in the white box space a lot. So a lot of the white box vendors that are, you know, people are going to be using edge core switches, um, you know, the Oni switches, you know, any of the white box uh, OS vendors, we do a lot of integration for that too. And even though Microtik isn't technically white box or Oni, it kind of falls into that commodity space along with a few other vendors. And what we've noticed in general is that they have weathered the supply chain crisis far better than all the major vendors because they're building simpler devices. They're not building it where, you know, you think of the big iron in Cisco, it's been this way, um, you know, in Juniper and, you know, Kia and all of them, they build the chassis just in time to deliver to the customer. So all the major vendors for a lot of big iron have really suffered with the supply chain crisis because there wasn't really any stock of them. Um, mm. And so that was a big challenge. Whereas Microtik, um, had a very fortunate accident. They had a warehouse fire in 2018 or 2019 in Riga that didn't knock their operation out totally, but it caused them to really look at their supply chain and their logistics and, and how they could, um, uh, you know, how they could improve that. And so they they began this project for a couple, three years of like just really fortifying their global supply chain that they kind of finished up right at the beginning of 2020, just in time. So they had a really, really, you know, that's why I called a fortunate accident. It was, you know, something where they did a really good job of having a lot of things in stock. And it wasn't until late last year that we started seeing a few things start being hard to get. So, you know, while everybody else was saying, hey, I can't get a router for a year, can't get a switch for two years, which is where most of our customers that are using all the mainstream vendors are. With Microtik, uh, the PoE stuff's hard to get right now. Everybody wants PoE. So that's still a little bit hard to find, but most of the gear is pretty available. I can go buy a router or switch for the most part and, and have it in a few days. Well, considering their dependency on other suppliers, like they they don't do their own chip fab, they're relying on Marvell and whoever else to, uh, yep. to, to make chips for them. I was ready for you to say, yeah, they're as screwed as everybody else is, but uh, but no, the happy accident seems to have put them in an unusual position. Well, a part of that has to do with their they're very agile you know, in the in their architecture. So they use if you look at the architecture, the boards that they use, they use MIPS, they use ARM, they use uh, there's an older uh, CPU called Telera. That I think I think Mellanox owns Telera now, if I remember right. They got went through a series of acquisitions. It was a low low power network platform. Um, that is, you know, probably eventually go away. I think Microtik's the only one still using it. Um, and, and that actually helped insulate them a lot because that was a supply chain that was really kind of unique to them. And mm. so they had a lot of flexibility in what they could put in there. And that, that I think helped a lot. There's a lot of different boards and platforms that they work with. Whereas you look at um, the major vendors, I think they, they're, you know, typically x86 and then either, you know, uh, you know, Broadcom merchant silicon or their own silicon. And so yeah. they wrap almost everything up into the same elements, whereas Microtech has a bit wider spread of CPU and board architectures. Which is interesting, the the, the flexibility that they have to be able to run across those different chipsets. Um, and also, though, I think the lower speed, because there's just, I guess, depending on the market you're in, somewhat less demand for it, uh, in a sense. You're not supplying 
massive big iron to a hyperscaler data center that wants the absolutely fastest chipset you can put in that everybody else wants and you want it you know massive amounts of it exactly and that's something that they you know they did not arrive like they just now added 100 gig of course there are vendors that have had 100 gig for years and years and years and years they didn't add it until it fit their price point until they were able to integrate the way that they want because there's hmm. very specific price points that they want to hit for the product so they're never going to be the first to implement the latest tech when it comes to boards and chips and speeds and feeds um but like i said they they have a router now that uh you know we've already tested it and gotten a couple hundred gig out of it and it's it's 2500 bucks you know i can do a full stack of bgp we can take in eight feeds uh you know we it actually fared slightly faster uh, we turned the ASICs off when we first tested it. It actually converged slightly faster than ASR and MX. We pulled in 1.1 million routes. Um, no, I take that back, 2 million routes. We had 2.2 million routes that we pulled in from two full feeds um, in a lab test in like, uh, I think it was like 46 seconds um, to learn the wow. routes. And that was <laughs> um, and that was with a 25 gig load on it, test load on the box. Wow, wow, so, wow. And so you'll find, and, and an interesting thing about that is you'll find in developing countries where the import and export restrictions are really, really high and make it very, very hard. Um, Microtech's exploded. Latin America, Africa, certain parts of Asia, when you get into Indonesia, um, they are, there are vast sections of the internet that run on, on only Microtech because it's the only product that fits the price point to build internet infrastructure there. Um, and so when you go into the data center in those countries, it is not uncommon to just find racks and racks of Microtech. Well, Kevin, the hardware is one thing. It's coming in at a great price point, a lot of flexibility, a lot of places it fits into the world. But what is the NOS all about? Is it something that they developed in-house? It's their own code base? Um, is there an open source flavor of it? How about, is there a lab-friendly version of it if I want to play with it? Sure. So it started out based on Linux and it's still based on Linux. They have been on a really interesting journey over the last 10 years because it's taken them quite a while to get their latest operating system out. They run a really old version of the Linux kernel for a long, long time. It's not an open source OS. It's it's a just like Cisco IOS or Junos. It's a proprietary OS that they develop that has a lot of you know, open source roots with Linux. And then they've built their own routing stack. In fact, one of the most notable things is when you go look at the routing stacks of who develops routing stacks, there really aren't that many vendors out there in the world. You know, Cisco, Juniper, Nokia, uh, Arista, you know, they all have their own routing stack. A lot of the other vendors will buy their routing stacks from different like IP Infusion, for IP example. Infusion, IP Infusion yeah. makes routing stacks for everybody. Um, and Microtech is one of the few vendors that does build their own routing stack. And so in as such, trying to get through... Um, upgrading it to the latest version of the Linux kernel was almost a 10-year journey for them. And they finally got to it, then they got an updated version of the OS, which allowed them to add a lot of new features. So it's it, there's a CLI in it. There's a, there are, are UIs, web UIs, as well as a fat client that you can use. So the operating system for the last 10 years has mostly been based around CPU architectures. I am my control plane and moving packets are all collapsed into whatever CPU is on the device. So if I have a MIPS CPU or an ARM CPU, everything is going through the same CPU, very much like the early routers of the 90s. And that's how they've been able to mm. keep the costs so low. When they started evolving into uh, ASICs, they, they first started with very simple switching chips. You could do VLANs, you could do some you know very basic QoS things. And that was not in the Marvel Prestera chipset. It was in another uh, chipset. They had some, some Broadcom and... Um, 
Uh, there's another one that, is, that the name escapes me, but so they were doing very, very simple switching, mostly routing and software. And that was where most of their feature sets were. And if you look at the, the routing stack, you can do BGP, you can do OSPF, RIP V2, not that anybody's really doing that a whole lot, but um, you can do MPLS, VPLS, RSVP, uh, TE. So if you want to go build, you know, most routing architectures that we would use in enterprise and service provider, leaving aside some of the newer things like segment routing and ISIS, um, those are not in there yet. Some things that they're working on, but and I can go into pretty much any enterprise shop. I can peer with a firewall. I can peer with a border router. If it's an IGP, if it's OSPF, I can, you know, we can turn up an OSPF neighbor adjacency and they do a lot of interop testing. I mean, I'd say at this point, there's very little in the realm of Juniper, Cisco, Arista, Nokia, Aruba, all of those that I haven't tested this with and been able to integrate it into that environment. So um, mostly standards-based, most of the things you expect to find are are going to be there in the NOS. Um, one of the things that you won't find, and this is something that we spend a lot of time when we're doing the consulting, is trying to figure out whether or not Microtik is a fit. Um, so like TACAX, for example, if you've got to have TACAX, is that's in there? It's something that's been requested, but that they don't have in there yet. They have Radius, and we, so we use Radius mostly for the authentication. Mm-hmm. But if TACAX is your jam and you can't get around it, then might not be the right fit for you. And that's something that, you know, will come across. If TACAX isn't a big deal, and, and it's funny, as the chip, as the, as the supply chain crisis wears on, what, what, is, what is a critical deal is becoming less and less, and it's really just becoming, I need a box to route. Um, but in the operating system, you're going to find all of the normal things that are typically there, um, your management protocols. SSH, NTP, SNMP. Um, there's now a REST API. Previously, they were on a proprietary API. Um, now it's on a REST API so that you know things can be a little bit more interoperable. Um, there's a ton of Ansible playbooks out there for Microtik now. In fact, um, I was out at Ansible when um, I think it was, we were out there for Networking Field Day. Uh, I want to say this was 2018 when they had just announced that they were officially supporting Microtik. Um, so Ansible has been supporting Microtik for the last, I guess, what, four years now. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you can consume it for the most part, just like any other network operating system that you're used to. Some of the things that I that I like about it, um, and this is really a love-hate relationship. Some people just hate the CLI. It's very different. Um, it uses slashes and the way that you, it's, if I were to compare it to anything, it would be most like Juniper. There's a lot of set statements in it. Um, mm-hmm. So you're doing things where you're adding and setting instead of, you know, going into comp T like we do in Cisco world. But one of the really neat things about it is the CLI is colorized. So if you make a mistake, all of your string is going to go red. So there are all these different colors to let you know what you're putting in. But if you make a boo-boo, it's all going to go red. And personally, I've gotten pretty fond of that. And I have to gripe when I go backwards and Cisco doesn't tell me that, you know, my command was wrong. Pretty handy if you're missing a brace to like close a phrase, that kind of thing is what I think of. Like if I'm doing Python programming, you know, you miss a quote or something like that. And then a whole bunch of text afterwards turns, turns a different color and points out, Hey, that's what you missed. Is it, is it kind of, kind of like that then it sounds like. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a lot like being in, you know, if you use notepad plus plus or a text editor where you're going to apply some kind of a filter to it, where it will evaluate, you know, whatever it is that you're writing and look and look for syntax errors the OS will colorize it and let you know if you're, you know, if if you're trying to tab complete something and what you're doing doesn't exist, it will just stay red because it doesn't know about it. So you can, you know, pretty quickly adjust whatever it is you're trying to do based on the colorization of the CLI. Um, so I've grown pretty fond of it. And, and there's a lot of things about it I'd like, but it is a, it was a tough transition for me. People come up to me all the time. They're like, God, I hate the Microtik CLI. I'm like, look, I get it. I was there 10 years ago. I was ready to throw it against the wall. It took me a while to warm up to it. But now there's, you know, there's things I like about it. Well, in 2022, is that how you typically consume that OS or do you actually use 
Ansible or you know some other more automated means or or the UI even. You mentioned a fat client. Yeah, so there's the we use the so I mean um, you know since we do a lot of the you know the carrier work and the data center work, I still do use the CLI some, but we do we use Ansible a lot now. You know we there's a lot of automation we wrap around. Um, you know, we'll, we'll use Netbox a lot. I think, you know, you guys have talked about Netbox before. Mm-hmm. Um, Netbox is a common single source of truth that we'll, we'll uh, marry with Ansible to be able to get a lot of things done. If you're, you know, if you're in the CI, CD world um, using, you know, infrastructure as code for your network, that's very popular. A lot of people do it. Um, if you want a visual uh, experience, there is a web UI, um, which is really not my favorite. It's functional. It's, it's not pretty to look at it. You know, it hasn't been updated in a long time. And there's a fat client called Winbox, which was developed for Windows mostly. And um, there's uh, wine clients out there now for Mac and Linux. So, you know, you can pretty much, you know, any of them, uh, you can use that. And visually, it's not really anything pretty to look at, but it's really functional. I compare it to like Cisco ASDM. For all of us that did ASAs back in the day, you know, when you were operating ASAs, you know, you spent equal parts of time in the CLI versus ASDM because certain things were good in ASDM (laughs) and certain things were good in the CLI. And so that's where I look at Winbox as. I I kind of flip back and forth between the two, Um, you know, and I'm, I'm not an automation guy. I've got some really smart people on my team that do that, but, you know. I'm of a, of a similar vintage of networking as you, Ethan, and I have not gotten into the <laughs> automation game uh, as heavily as some of the other people on my my team have. So can I uh, run, I guess, uh, Microtix, it's called Router OS. Can I run Router Correct. OS on uh, in my lab somehow? Absolutely. So they, they've supported x86 for a long time. And then they started to come out, I guess it was five or six years ago, they came out with a VM that was prepackaged that's got all of the images that you can download. And that's totally free. I think it's licensed for like a meg of throughput if you have the demo license and that'll and that'll go forever. It's um, so you can put it on cloud. I think there's already pre-built repos and every major cloud already has a microtech that you can just roll, just point and click and deploy it. If you want to put it on bare metal, you can put it on bare metal. Um, one of the interesting things they did in upgrading their OS is that they really did a lot of work on drivers. So if you want to put Microtik on a you know really high-end server with 100 gig NICs and build something, you know, whether you want to build a you know a custom CG NAT engine, you know, if you're wanting to do some shaping or you just have this really specialized network thing that you want to build, which interestingly enough, that's why people come to us for Microtik. It's really flexible. People that have these ideas of this thing they want to build that either isn't cost effective in a big vendor um, or it isn't um, you know, or it doesn't exist. Uh, they will often use Microtech as their base, and then they'll, you know, we'll roll a VM or or bare metal or something like that. But if you for labbing, if you use even G, GNS3, Container Lab, any of those, um, it is interestingly enough, it's one of the most lightweight images that you will find. If memory serves, it's 128 megs of RAM to load it up and like one vCPU. So, I mean, I've put like a hundred of these things into <laughs> EVNG. I'll even use them when I don't really need Microtech just because, you know, I'll be working on a design where my, you know, my, my Cisco ASR 9K virtual images are, you know, sucking down gobs <laughs> of RAM and CPU. And I need something lightweight to test a peering or test a, you know, a ping test point. And I'll yeah. spin up a Microtech because it's not going to make my Eve box fall over. Yeah, let alone that that ASR 9K image takes about 10 minutes to boot and buries every core you've got just to get it going. We have a whole rack at our data center just for network modeling because of it, because we have some big, big shops that have that. And we had to, I think we had to dedicate two or three services just to that one type of router to fully lab the network. It's a beast. We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor, CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, 
Training's never stopped for me because sometimes going for cert. Sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nuggets specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which, which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface, digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal, and they are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some, some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. You mentioned that, okay, it's it's Linux. It, it is Linux. It's based on Linux. Router S is, it is based yeah. on Linux. So do, how much flexibility do I have to run my own things? Like you mentioned, you know, TACX. It doesn't have TACX. Yeah, but right. there's an open source TACX daemon I could run in theory, or but it sounds like I can't do that on Router OS. So the answer is yes and no. Today, today you cannot accept for one beta image. So one of the things that they did in modernizing the version of Linux that they were on is they recognized that People love using Microtik because it, it because it fits in some very physically it fits in some very small spaces and it fits in um, uh, it fits in very harsh environments. Microtik realized that they were never going to be able to develop every single feature that everybody wanted for all these crazy use cases that people wanted to use them for. So they did start working on container support and they released a one version of container support in their latest version of the OS, which is what we call RouterOS version seven. Um, and they had to pull it back because they found a security vulnerability that they mm -hmm. wanted to go address. And so they're going to re-release it here in the next 30 or 60 days. But there is one beta version that has container support. So if you want to play around with it. And I mean, people were adding things like uh, Snort. They were adding like, you know, um, mm -hmm. different types of hotspots, monitoring engines, Libra NMS. I mean, you name it. Like to your point, if you wanted to add TACX, you could add TACX. You know, we thought about adding free range routing, just add segment mm -hmm. routing, just, you know, just because. Um, because on that high-end box, the uh, the one that has the Amazon Graviton CPU, it can move 200 gig uh, of traffic on, I think, something ridiculous like 40 watts because it's so <laughs> low power. And, they're, 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 and their switch can be powered by PoE. Their 100 new 100 gig switch can be powered by PoE. Like that's how power efficient it is. So being able to adapt the OS, like what we find is when we use this in... Um, environments where you have to have a lot of them at scale and you want to put a probe out there or just, you know, manage a, a test thing 
or in the ISP environment where we want to do something like environmental monitoring, you know, everybody's waiting on that container support because then you can just you really kind of customize what you want the build to look like. And you're doing it on a, an architecture that if I were to take the average mainstream vendor router and put it onto solar and had to put it on solar in a, a carrier type deployment, it probably wouldn't last 24 hours. There's an ISP we work for in South Africa because they had a lot of grid problems a few years ago that they are up to almost 10 days of continuous operations on solar and batteries because these things sip so little power. Uh, you said 40 watts earlier for that 100 gig uh, throughput box. And it's just blowing my mind. I'm remembering having to bring in kilowatts of power to fire up like a Nexus chassis, something like oh, that. Yeah. It's it's just astonishing how little power you can get away with in some of these uh, microtick form factors. And to that point, one of the most interesting things about Microtech is that the vast majority of their gear can be PoE powered. Um, mm. Not all of it, but most of them can be PoE powered, the routers and the switches. Um, and they do passive PoE. So like at my house, I have a whole slew of routers. I have one PoE switch and a whole bunch of routers that I use for different test things. Same thing here at the lab. And if I want to test the router, I don't have to have like a wall of just you know plugs to plug the routers in. I just plug their port into the PoE yeah. switch it powers them up and I, you know, I can do all that in one plug for, you know, 30 or 40 devices because they're so, <laughs> so efficient. So that creates some interesting things that you can do when all of your network equipment can be PoE powered. It is really interesting. I mean, I have a PoE switch, 48 port PoE switch in my basement from my house. I don't need 48 ports, um, but I've got, so I've got a lot of spares. That's, uh, that's fascinating, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, a practical ops question, Kevin, walk us through a Microtech NOS upgrade process. So yeah, the, the network operating system upgrade is pretty straightforward. They have an auto upgrade that you can do. So if you've got DNS and you're connected to the internet, um, one thing I will give Microtech props for, they are really good on IPv6 as far as their software stacks. Um, they've had a few gaps in their previous operating system, but when you, if you're on a native IPv6 network, the upgrade will work, which is, I can't say the same for most, you know, over the air vendor upgrades. If you don't have IPv4 and IPv6 together, it will, it will invariably break somewhere. But Microtech's pretty good about single stack IPv6. And when I upgrade the OS, I can go into it and select um, just to upgrade over the internet. And they reboot really, really fast. Um, that was the other thing that I noticed about them 10 years ago. Generally, you can upgrade the router and when you select the upgrade and let it reboot and be back online and forwarding packets in 15 to 20 seconds. Like that's about how fast it takes to upgrade <laughs> one of them. And yeah, I mean, you think about, yeah, you think about uh, the chassis days of like, you know, think about a Nexus when you're having to do the, um, uh, oh, yeah. what is it like the FPGA upgrades, yeah, like yeah, where you're yeah. doing yeah, rolling upgrades. You know, I think I, was, I had a six and, hour yeah. Nexus upgrade once, oh, <laughs> like yeah. the cards. Of a seven K, you're, you're watching the output of this thing hitting microcode on every individual line card as it goes, and just praying it all it all gets done. And and it is right; it's a multi-hour process for sure. You know, to have it back up and running in you know what did you say, fifteen to twenty seconds? Yeah, fifteen to twenty seconds. Some of the newer ones that have ASICs are taking a little bit longer, like the PoE ones. I think they take about maybe a minute to come back, so they're still pretty snappy compared to most uh, you know operating system upgrades. Um, and, and that's one avenue that you can do it. You can go on the internet, request one of the different channels of, of code, and they have similar uh, to the other vendors. They've got um, uh, a channel that's called um, Long Term, which is you know just like LTS and Linux. Um, and then they do have one. Their their main version of code is called Stable, um, which I kind of wish they'd rename because it, it is it's where they add their new features to. And it's not that it's unstable, but the long term is really what we use for prod. Like that's the one where they just patch bugs and don't do anything else. Just star code in everybody else's you know realm. What we'd call you know the maintenance release, maybe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And then you've got they've got. Um, 
they've got testing and development releases, um, depending on which you know version of code you're working in. So you've got about four different types of OS upgrades that you can do. And again, you can do that all over the internet. The other really interesting thing, and this is one of the things I love most about Microtik is if you think about the way we've always had to upgrade routers and switches, you know, you've always got to have an FTP server, TFTP server, some SCP server, something out there. Um, Microtik's fat client, and this is one of the things I love most about it, um, and this works in a Windows world and in a, in a Mac and Linux world, it will allow you to drag a file onto the fat client and then transfer the file on. So once I download it from the internet, I literally just have to drag it from my desktop onto the router if I'm going to do the non-internet upgrade, and it will transfer it to it in about 10 seconds. And then I can reboot the router and I'm not going through like 20 minutes of setting up an FTP server if I don't already have one set up on the network that I'm on. So if you're in, and there's a lot of little things that Microtik has done to make field work a lot easier. You can tell that this came, this router was built out of a guy sitting at a radio tower at 300 feet that had to manage this thing, (laughs) harnessed in, you know, so a lot of the management things that came out of this router, like we can talk about Mac Telnet and Roman in a little bit, which are some really interesting, unique layer two management tools, but um, they made it to where it was super easy to transfer images on and off because by necessity, um, it couldn't be a complex process in the field. And so, you know, if you're, you know, not sitting at a tower, but you're a field tech at, you know, in an enterprise or in a data center, it's very, very easy to do the upgrades. Even if you don't have internet access, you can usually complete one with the non-internet path in uh, about, you know, a minute maybe or less. Um, well, and then well, if you want to, there's a, console. a milk crate with a perf tile blowing cold air up your back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You don't have to get comfortable on that for too long. Um, although that is like one of my favorite spots well, of the data center, find the coldest spot of the data center. Tell me about this layer two, um, connectivity option, no IP and I can still connect to the thing. Yeah, so I'll tell you a quick little story. Um, as these things were first being developed, um, and like I said, they were being put at the top of radio towers, um, they quickly discovered that network engineers had a proclivity for breaking these things and sending tower climbers right back up to go console into them. And they said, you know what, we've got to figure out a way that even if you if you totally hose the firewall config, the routing config, and you just totally botch it, that we can manage these things. And so they developed a protocol that is to this day called Mac Telnet. And in the 90s, it, re- it really was Telnet. Um, it's still called Mac Telnet, but it's evolved to SSH. And it's all done with, uh, with Mac frames. It's all done with mm-hmm. source and destination Mac. So you, know, you think about all the weird L2 protocols we've seen over the years. You know, we've had Trill and Fabric Path and you know, some <laughs> other things uh, you know, come out, uh, SPB, that have come out over the years that have used um, Layer 2. And if I remember right, I think Radia Perlman did a show on Spanning Tree where she said, you know, originally Layer 2 was supposed to be the Layer 3 in the OSI model, and then it all got hijacked in politics. But that was the layer that they intended uh, to kind of be routing things at. So Microtik took advantage of the fact that you can communicate at Layer 2 between Macs, and they built a management protocol that essentially just uses broadcast to find any adjacent Microtik that's on the network. And if you have the fat client up, you will literally just see the MAC addresses fill into the discovery window and you can click on it and manage it. And where I first used this, what most successfully was we were in the early days, we were working on a wireless ISP out in, I think it was out in Arizona. And somebody forgot to clear their buffer um, in copying and pasting and pasted the wrong OSPF config in, which proceeded to knock down 60 radio towers in a chain across the Arizona desert. Um, which was a really bad day and would have required like a massive mobilization of people and climbers to go fix. But because of the layer two adjacency, and this is before they added the next protocol I'll talk about, which is called Roman, 
you could just hop into each one. Like you would go into one, fix it. And then you would see the neighbor adjacent layer two Mac and you'd hop into the next one. And so we made our way, you know, over a period of a couple of hours back and we undid all of the things that we messed up as we, you know, did the, the uh, notepad vomit into the router. Um, and we're able to restore connectivity to, you know, a large section of the internet um, without rolling trucks and people in tower climbers because that exists. Then they came back and this was maybe 10 or 15 years later because in that scenario, I still had to hop through each of those 60 towers individually and log into them individually. And that took some time. They came back with another protocol to manage that called Roman or router manager. And it was basically a layer two jump server for that protocol. So what it would do is you could log into the router that was using that protocol at layer three over the internet or over VPN or, you know, into an IP address um, or IPv6 address. And then you can, you can force it to show all the neighbors that it knows about that are layer two adjacent. And we'll even show the Mac paths for you. So you can see like all the Mac path it takes to get out to there. So that mm -hmm. same 60 tower daisy chain network that was out there, I could go into one router and then hop into each of them like in about five or 10 seconds and restore that connectivity pretty quickly. Um, and that's something that we use today a lot on the, in the wireless ISP side. And uh, we've even used on the, uh, on the enterprise side that when you have an oopsie, um, you can go in and, uh, and fix things. And it might be a good time to point out that one of the most common uses for big organizations, cloud operators, carriers, is they use Microtik as an out-of-band management network. It's so flexible and has so many interesting protocols to kind of save the network when things go wrong. You will find a lot of big names that some of which I, I can't tell you because of NDA that have Microtik as their out-of-band management network because it is a Swiss army knife of, of save the day, essentially. Well, it's funny you say you say that because that's what I was thinking. It's like some of this obviates what you would buy open gearboxes for, maybe because you you might it, not. It does. Yeah, you can actually plug a USB cable into it and turn it into a multi-port console server. And just like a Cisco router, if I want to flip the one console port on the board box back around and console in the other way, I now have a one-port console server at the end of it. And then what, what really kind of sealed the deal was they recently added zero tier. And I'm not sure if you guys have done a show. I'm sure you've heard the chatter about zero tier in the not, industry. Not for, we interviewed Adam, but I think that goes back like five years. I've been actually meeting to ping him and, uh, you know, get an update on what's going on with zero tier, but yeah. Yeah. So zero tier, like, you know, it's, it's sim similar to, I say, say similar to tail scale because it, it, you know, it goes, it's a layer two protocol and has a lot of differences, but there is this, this mesh VPN market that's kind of been created in the last few years. There's a lot yeah. of, uh, you know, competing vendors in the space. Uh, I think it was a year ago, Microtech announced they were adding zero tier. So now I have this, I have this mesh VPN protocol that is super easy to set up, super secure. I can go into a controller and have a node online in like a minute. And now I have this hyper flexible router and switch platform that people use for out of band management. So to fast forward to where we are now in big data centers for, you know, for enterprises or at even at locations where you want to have, uh, you know, smart hands and feet without having a body. They make LTE uh, devices that are um, a small AP that has LTE and, you know, kind of like a cradle point, you know, kind of like an yeah. LTE router, but it's all, it has a Wi-Fi AP and an ethernet port. So all in one box, I can get into it securely um, over IPv4 or IPv6 and access that and do serial console, Mac telnet, all of these different things. You can also use it as an FTP server. Um, so one of the th other things we'll use it for is if I want to upgrade my Cisco or Juniper routers, I can literally just go plug a flash card in, give it like, you know, 10, 20, 30 gig of space, and then go put it out, not only as the gateway to my out-of-band management network, but also as a place to do SCP or FTP to, to be able to upgrade all of my other vendors. That's very cool. I'm just, I'm 
just giggling because it's like I can see that the 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 your inner nerd is just so lit up by how cool these boxes are. It, you know, it's it's funny. I've been I've been floored by them, but once I got over hating, you know, hating them years ago when I was, <laughs> they were so different. I really I started to appreciate all the different things that they could do and the role that they filled. And so it's a lot of fun. You know, every day we find something new that, you know, that they can do. But this is integrating them into business networks has become more and more mainstream because mm. it's, you know, the, the margins are hard out there now. You know, the economy is in a tougher spot, you know, trying to get, um, you know, trying to pay $100,000 for a router or even ten dollars or $20,000 for a router is a tough proposition these days, if mm. you can even get it. So Kevin, for the network automation folks that are out there, um, you've mentioned there's Ansible support, for example, for router OS. Uh, is there, for someone who wants to take a step back, they're not on Ansible, maybe they just, they want to get into it with Python. Is there a good API for Microtech router OS? Yeah, there is. There's, um, and and I'm the wrong guy to ask for this, but some of our guys use, uh, there's Microtech's, their proprietary API that was in their older version six software was a lot harder to work with, with Python. Um, there were a few people that developed an API that would allow you to use Python with it. Now that they moved to a REST API, I think there's mm. several that have already come out with Python so that you can, you know, integrate it with in a, in a more similar way as you would with the other mainstream vendors. Hmm. Okay. That's straightforward enough. So you can, th there's something there you can, you can build your own. I, I know you said you're not the guy that digs deeply into the automation stuff, but, uh, do you happen to know, uh, is their API pretty, pretty well documented? Yeah, it's getting there. The new API, the old API was, was, it was documented. Okay. I mean, it was, it was not, um, super extensive. There were some things that we definitely had to find. Um, now that they've, they've moved all their docs off of a wiki onto confluence, like a lot of other vendors. And so, um, they hired a lot of staff to kind of fill in the documentation gaps on hmm. that side of it. One, one of their big growth challenges was they, um, they were so successful so fast, they couldn't get out of their headquarters. They couldn't hire enough people to, um, to get all these developers to put this documentation down for all these things like the API. And so a few years back, they bought like, uh, it was like an old Soviet um, like bottle of soda factory or record factory or something like that. And they built this massive Silicon Valley type headquarters mm. so they could just hire as many people as they needed. And they have the only largest indoor climbing wall in Latvia. So like when you step into it now, it looks like every, it looks like Google, right? It's the, I think they were the first company just as of last year um, to reach 1 billion euros in value as privately held in, uh, in Latvia. Um, so, so back to your original question about the documentation, now that they have tons of space and they've hired teams of people in the last few years to tackle all of these challenges, they're rapidly filling in confluence with things like the REST API documentation. Okay. Walk us through the Microtech uh, support experience, uh, the, the life cycle, things like from, do, do you sure. buy a contract? How do you open a case? And then how do you get a case resolved? And, and walk us through that. So this is one of the areas that is that kind of spurred what we do is, as an integrator, because um, Microtech support has always been via, uh, via email and opening tickets. There is no phone number to call for Microtech, which is one of the reasons we came into existence because we started working with bigger companies. They wanted to pick up the phone and call somebody. And I don't know that they'll ever get there. I think their value proposition is that um, they've got such a slim margin. I don't think they're ever going to be a phone tech company. So if you're okay with email support and doing email support, that's where they are. And they're pretty responsive now that they've solved the the personnel shortage, that that hump that they got over. I opened a ticket with them. Um, there was an MPLS bug that I found in IPv6 on their new uh, OS. And I opened it. Um, I think I got an answer back. Uh, it was about two weeks. I got an answer back that they'd acknowledge the bug and that they were able to reproduce it in the lab. And they said that it would be introduced in the next beta release 
um, which is, I think that was a week ago. So I'll probably will see a fix within the next 30 days. Well, is that because you're Kevin and they know who Kevin Myers is or? Yeah, so that's probably fair. We definitely do. You know, we definitely know the developers. You know, we know the C-level Microtech really, really well. Um, but I know in general, Microtech is pretty good about, um, you know, they try to be pretty fair on the on the playing field. So even though I definitely, um, you know, I'm uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, we're a favorite over there. They they try to give the same experience to everybody. Fairness is a big thing culturally in Latvia. And so, you know, they if it's easy to fix, they're going to put it on the roadmap um, to go fix. Generally, when it's harder to fix, then it's that's something that gets punted back. So you'll find things that, you know, haven't been added for a while because there's just it's just not easy to add. So it kind of gets punted to the end of the line. And so it's it's, you know, if you're used to being able to pick up the phone and talk to TAC and get an engineer in 30 minutes, and resolve it and have this world-class CCIE expert on the phone to resolve it, you know, that's not the Microtech support experience. You know, they're very much um, about, you know, um, providing the support email and then using the user forums and there's several other unofficial communities. So people that, you know, once you square yourself with that's the way it's going to be supported, then, you know, people are able to make their way through that and open tickets and, you know, get resolutions in a fairly timely manner. Um, in fact, you know, from what I could see on vendor tech, of the tech that we've dealt with in the last few years, you know, Microtik's uh, time for resolution is starting to get on the better side of things. Hmm. What if you have DOA hardware? It's not a software problem. It's uh, you know, it's a hardware problem. So the way they work is if you think about the way we work in most of the enterprise vendors, you know, you're going to go to a VAR, right? You're going to pick your favorite VAR. You're going to buy your box through them. And then, you know, Cisco is going to fulfill or Juniper, whoever is going to fulfill all of the, you know, hardware uh, replacement through there. I mean, every now and then the VAR gets involved, but it's mostly the manufacturer. Microtech is a little bit different. Um, they're more aligned with the ISP world. The ISP world does not really lean on VARs in the same way. They will normally go to hardware resellers. Um, there's a little bit of a subtle difference there in that the hardware resellers are generally not expected to be solutions architects and be professional services organizations. They are generally just there to sell boxes because most of the ISP teams kind of know what they want. They're very, very multi-vendor environments. Yep. So there isn't like this one vendor solution architecture that's going to fit anyway. So the that's where Microtech's hardware model evolved out of is you go to a you go to a reseller, you buy the box, and then when you RMA it, it will generally be through the reseller. You'll generally take it back to the reseller and they'll ship you a new box if they determine it's going to be RMA, and then they'll send it back. The nice thing about Microtech is they're so inexpensive that it has to be one of the larger, more expensive boxes for people to even bother with the RMA or if it happened to be a large volume of devices, yeah. because when it's a hundred dollar router, you know, yeah. the time you spend going through the RMA process, you just go order 10 more. And as long as it's not yeah. a systemic <laughs> failure, it's yeah. generally just worth your time to keep a whole bunch of them on the shelf, which is to that point, the enterprises that we work with, they realize that wanted to use these for different things. You know, in the early days, when we first started working with them, they asked about like, well, they have four hour replacement. Like, you know, like, like Cisco and Juniper tech, I was like, well, it's a hundred bucks just buy 10 of them. They were like, oh yeah, we could do that. So they yeah. just keep stairs on the shelf. Yeah. Uh, so some closing questions, Kevin, one is on security Microtech every once in a while bubbles up to the top of some excited headline about uh, security vulnerabilities or problems. Are they any more or less secure than any of the other vendors that are out there? No, there's a, one of the most interesting problems Microtech has is there's nothing really like it that exists anywhere else. You know, if I go to Best Buy and buy a router, um, I, you know, I'm not going to get something that can do, that can do MPLS, RSVP, TE out of the box, but Microtech sells devices that are, you know, used for home CPEs that have all the capabilities of the bigger routers. And so there've been a few vulnerabilities they've been, uh, uh, they've been exposed to over the years. They, 
they work with Cisco Talos for their CVEs, like a lot of other vendors do to register their CVEs and make sure mm-hmm. that they're uh, closed up. They have their code audited regularly. I mean, they've published that a number of times that their code is is audited and is passed audit um, for the last few times that it's been through it. So they're pretty well tested and buttoned up. There was a vulnerability about, I guess it was about five years ago that allowed um, that allowed remote takeover of the box. And it was one of those that came out of, what was the big CIA leak five or six years ago, where they leaked a bunch of stuff about network devices and compromises that the intelligence yeah. community was using. It came out of that. And so it was one of the routers that was vulnerable to that leak of information. And so at the time, a lot of routers got remotely taken over and it created this big fleet of bots. And MicroTik routers are sometimes chosen by the people that are trying to hack because I can do BGP. I can do all these things that I can't do on a little Linksys. If I compromise a Linksys, I can like ping or, you know, get access to <laughs> Linux, but you, you can't do a ton. So they sit in this interesting space in that the, that vulnerability has been closed up for years, but they're so cheap and so plentiful. There's still compromised routers out there. So a lot of, you know, security industry uh, types will still write, you know, these, these, you know, a little bit clickbaitish you know, articles yeah, like yeah. the big Microtech compromise, but every single one of them is still pointing back to a vulnerability that was closed up five years ago. So, and it's also worth noting, it was only, you could only exploit it if the firewall was off. So you had to have a lot of things that, you know, that had to be true to, to do it. And so from a security perspective, to give you an idea of where they're used, um, you know, we've done work with, you know, various NATO allied militaries that use them in, in different ways. Um, uh, even the Ukrainian military uses them in combat drones right now. So there's, if there was any question about security, the the frequency with which we find them in military hardware that requires a small, lightweight, portable router, um, it would lend itself to the fact that it's not easily compromised. Hmm. Okay. It, well, I, I felt that the concern of security vulnerabilities in MicroTik stuff was probably overblown in that we also hear from Cisco and Juniper and F5 and Palo and, and you know, it, it never ends the list of CVEs that are coming out in big name equipment. So are they any different than anybody else? Doesn't sound like it. You know, they, you know, they have their issues, they get them patched and we all move on with our lives just like every other vendor you got to deal with. Yeah, nailed it. That's pretty much it. Yep. Well, Kevin, I thought a good closing question would be for you to talk about how you use MicroTik in your in your customer projects. Maybe some typical use cases. You've talked about a lot of it kind of along the way here, but maybe uh, maybe some some closing stories. Yeah, so I'll tell you. Uh, so I'll start by that by telling you one of my favorite stories of of MicroTik and enterprise because up until the chip shortage, it was really hard to get MicroTik into a into a critical role in enterprise, especially large enterprise. So. One of the stories that I tell, and this happened a few years ago, was there was a large publicly traded enterprise uh, that was, they were like a $19 billion company, um, you know, that um, was all Cisco. They used all Cisco routers. And we were building out a, a flagship data center in New York. And we ordered like, I think like four Cisco ASR 1006Xs to do like, um, you know, peering in transit for the internet uplinks for the data center. And then L3 uh, MPLS VPN aggregation for all the remote sites that were coming in. and those routers got delayed. And so I actually flew up to the data center and I was there and, and uh, was like, Hey guys, we have no routers. I can't build this data center. And like, well, it has to go online in a week. And that company had been kind of experimenting with using MicroTik routers as hotspots in their locations um, because it was an uncritical role. And they would go buy a commodity internet connection and go plug in a MicroTik and just make it a hotspot and then tag that VLAN back to the main corporate Wi-Fi network for guest internet. And that had worked really well. So they had a familiarity with MicroTik in that aspect. And I said, guys, 
you know, Microtech makes a one RU router that will do what you want to do. Cause these were like one gig circuits. We weren't you know, talking about, you know, multi hundred gig or anything. It was pretty, pretty straightforward. And, and I said, we could get four Microtech one RU routers overnight into this data center. And all we need, all we need is BGP and OSPF and, you know, DSCP for the voice and video traffic, all things that were well within the realm of Microtech to be able to do like any other router. And uh, they said, uh, well, we're just not sure about that. They said, what, you know, can we trust Microtech? And I said, we can trust a lot better than the vaporware you have right now. You have nothing right now. I said, I'm flying out in three days. We either do this or this data center doesn't go online. It's like, okay, order it. So we ordered $6,000 worth of Microtech's just so you know, these are like a thousand dollars a piece plus the overnight shipping. So like not even the price of a single optic in the other deployment, the, in the, uh, in the ASR 1006 deployment. And we put them in, we got them online. And the, the thinking was that we were going to get them, uh, uh, leave them in for three or four weeks uh, while the the Cisco routers came in and ended up that the uh, those routers came in way late and everybody had forgotten about it by that point because the data center was just running. We had a corporate headquarters of 4,000 people that were sending voice and video calls with WebEx through it. And we had, you know, applications that were running over the internet and everybody kind of forgot. And a few months later, they were like, hey, do we ever take those Microtech routers back out of the, of the, the main data center to do all that stuff? And I started getting notes that the ASRs were sitting on pallets, like in the inventory room in the data center. <laughs> and so then they were like, somebody asked the question, they were like, do we really need several hundred thousand dollars worth of routers? Because the 5,000 routers did it. And I was like, not really, no. But if you want to have a warm and fuzzy, you know, that it's there, you, you could do that. And so they they ended up, it kept, you know, as things tend to do in enterprise, kept getting punted and punted. And it was two years before we put the Cisco routers in. And it wasn't because the, they had any confidence issues in the Microtech. Um, they just, they couldn't get their money back because of the terms of the contract. So they had to put the routers in because nobody wanted to go back and say, yeah, we, you know, we dropped a few hundred thousand dollars on routers that nobody's going to use. <laughs> so we, you know, they ended up running the corporate headquarters, the flagship data center of a $19 billion company for two years. Um, and, and, if you look at the other things that we put them into, we put them into retail. So if you're a retail organization that has thousands of locations that you need a very cost-effective uh, device to connect back, we use them in. Uh, we use them in those locations. We use them small, medium enterprise. They're on fire right now. If you're a small, medium enterprise where you've got like, let's say you got 25, 50 locations in whatever vertical you're in in small, medium enterprise, getting Microtech router switches and APs is a really, really common deployment um, because you know most people just want to connect to cloud these days, uh, especially in small, medium and enterprise. Almost everything they have is in the cloud. So all they really need is an on-ramp to the internet. And Microtech gives them a very cost-effective way to on-ramp the users to the internet and then connect, you know, what few physical resources they have on premises mm -hmm. to be able to do that. So, you know, if you look at it across the board in, in enterprise, you know, anywhere you're going to use a router, a switch, an AP, you know, that's a deployment that fits, we will often swap in a Microtech uh, to be able to do that. They recently added VXLAN. So now we're testing VXLAN interop with other devices. Um, EVPN's not there yet, but they're, you know, they're considering it. So, you know, anywhere that we would slot that in, you know, we'll use a Microtech. And if it doesn't work, we'll generally recommend uh, something else. And then on the data center side, I think we mentioned out of band uh, that we use it for uh, out mm -hmm. of band. And uh, but now that they have 100 gig boxes, um, we will start using them for data center core fabrics um, for routing, as well as, um, you know, we use them for peering and transit routers. Um, we use them for aggregation routers if we need to do a CGNAT gateway. Um, if we need to do an MPLS PE, um, we use them in that case. And then uh, we use them at the towers of uh, ISPs or um, We'll use them at um, very remote locations. If I need it, if I have a remote location that uh, has a lot of power constraints, um, and this is true whether it's enterprise or uh, service provider, 
Uh, there's one enterprise that is agricultural in nature um, that they do. I think it's grain elevators that they do. And they had like, I don't know, 6,000 locations to cover. Mm. So in every other respect, they were a very traditional enterprise. They had data centers, they had, they had, you know, corporate offices of people that needed to do things, but they had all these rural, their, you know, their locations were these very rural grain elevators. And so we put MicroTics out to be able to connect those back into uh, most of the, uh, you know, enterprise clouds that they were building out in public clouds. So, you know, I, I think I would cap it all off by saying anywhere you would find a router or switch or AP or anything else that you would use, you know, once you've scrubbed the feature sets for the things that you need in your org, um, they provide a pretty good drop in replacement for those things. So Kevin, this has been a fantastic conversation. I have learned a lot. Now, I know you're pretty active uh, socially, so please plug anything you'd like to plug. Twitter, blog, books, courses, whatever you got. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at StubAreA51 and also on my blog at StubAreA51.net, um, on LinkedIn at uh, Kevin Myers. And then uh, because my main gig is working as an independent consultant, uh, you can find me there on my consulting company, which is IParchitects.com, which is I-P-A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-H-S.com. Excellent. Uh, thank you again, Kevin, for being a guest on Heavy Networking today and all of you out there listening. Thank you very much. We really do appreciate it. Uh, a housekeeping reminder for you. You can find all the things to help with your professional career development at packetpushers.net. We offer all for free and with your privacy respected. We have a Slack group, a newsletter, there are white papers, there's a technical community blog, there's a YouTube channel, and of course, our entire podcast lineup. And all of that data is searchable, of course. Packetpushers.net, it, the whole point, it's meant to be a good resource as you do industry research. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.